It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. other side of midnight i'm frank morano uh, this is wild mountain time by sarah calderwood i tried to find one of the many versions of this song performed by our next guest over the years but unfortunately every single version of this song is that is sung by him that i could find anyway is drowned out by a chorus of drunken irishmen now not that that's not delightful to hear not if you're one of the drunken irishmen especially but uh, for broadcast purposes the sarah calderwood version sort of does the trick i have to tell you of all the interviews that i've done of late there are few that have gotten a better response to uh, my uh, that I've gotten a better response to than my discussion with Malachi McCourt recently. If you are aware of who Malachi McCourt is, you already know what a great wit he is. You are already aware of what this veteran actor, writer, humorist, former pub owner, and uh, just overall New York personality is capable of. But If you're not aware yet of Malachi McCourt, then I almost envy you because you are about to experience one of the great intellectuals of our time, one of the great comic geniuses of our time, one of the great philosophers of our time, and a guy that's so wise that he might not even fully comprehend what he's saying. He's the author of several books. Uh, Recently, his masterpiece, Amongst Swimming, was re-released, and uh, his book on the subject of dying is as uh, as relevant today as ever, especially for him. It's called Death Need Not Be Fatal. I say that because uh, he's joining us from hospice care, uh, where he is in the process of supposedly dying in his 90s. So I guess uh, in a manner of speaking, joining us live from his deathbed is the one and only Malachi McCourt. Malachi, it is great to talk with you again, my friend. My dear man, I'm, uh, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm hardly able to stir after that wonderful obituary you just read, and it, uh, but I'm doing my best to sit up and uh, <laughs> because the, uh, uh, I get tired of examining my ceiling, and uh, so I have to sit up and, uh, and take notice of what's going on and, and, and have a chat with yourself. I, um, I'm delighted. Uh, my, uh, I'm in the hospice uh, care, as you said. At uh, I'll be 91 in, uh, in September 20th, and uh, so it's uh, it's amazing. I'm astonished that I am uh, still here, but the hospice care is at home, and I have uh, they give you six months in uh, to live. And then if you do, if you if you live, they kick you off hmm. uh, hospice. 
if you die, they kick you off, off hospice. <laughs> so either way, you're, you're, you lose the hospice care at the end of six months if you die or if you don't die. So anyway, I have until uh, the 9th of November before I die or get off hospice. <laughs> and then the way it's looking is uh, I'm, I'm trying to appear weak and feeble and and uh, I'm not working. It's not working because I'm 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 uh, my my instincts are still to be a smart ass, and that's it for today. Uh, I mean, uh, in the sense you you, know, you are certainly pulling that off. And uh, I don't know about you, but if I had a choice of leaving hospice, either by dying or by living, I would certainly choose uh, the the latter. Um, you know, Maliki, you were such a well-known New York personality going back to decades as a talk show guest, as a talk show host, as an actor, a pub owner, an occasional humorist. But uh, something interesting happened in the 1990s. Your brother Frank wrote one of the best-reviewed memoirs of all time, one of the best-selling memoirs of all time, and that's not an exaggeration, Angela's Ashes. You're obviously a character in your brother's memoir as well. And it seemed like all of a sudden you went from being sort of regionally known and known uh, by uh, people on both coasts as a, as a comic and a wit and an interesting person to being nationally and internationally known as Frank McCourt's brother. Now, what is that like for you going from being so well known in your own right and for Frank being known as Malachi's brother for all these years to then being known as Frank McCourt's brother uh, in, starting about 30 years? years ago well it uh, uh, I was so you know Frank Frank was always the, a great genius he left school as I did at the age of uh, 13 because we were so miserably poor and poverty-stricken in Ireland living in Islam and my mother living on a couple of dollars a week and my father having deserted us and we were hungry and miserable and cold. And uh, I don't know how we bloody were. Two, two of the brothers died. My sister died. in. I was born in Brooklyn, but we went to Ireland after that. And so it, uh, that, that was uh, a horrendous time in, uh, in Ireland. And so I'm not sentimental about that place at all. Two brothers died, two more were born. So they're all dead now, and I'm the last one left. But anyway, Frank came here, and he got in the, went into the service and, and uh, did his couple of years, and he got the GI Bill. Now, he had never been to high school. Somehow or another, he managed to talk his way into New York University, and they gave him probation and allowed him to uh, to graduate with a bachelor's degree, and he got a master's, and then he taught at one of the most prestigious high schools in the country, Stuyvesant, in uh, in Manhattan. Oh, that's pretty impressive. And he, I mean, that's, and he, uh, that's one so of the uh, then, best schools in the whole country, Stuyvesant. Yep. So he then catapulted into fame when he wrote Angela's Ashes. And he got such reviews and they made it into a movie. I can't 
tell you how delighted I was to uh, that, that 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 happened because nobody was more deserving of it because he was just the most generous, decent guy you ever met. Died far too soon, mm. but anyway, there it was. <clears throat> so anyway, I am writing another book, which is called. And my title I have at the moment, anyway, is I read your brother's book. <laughs> That's a book I can't wait to read. Hey, well, That'll speak. Be it, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have you had other siblings as well. Your brother Alfie, the youngest of the McCourt brothers, uh, became a writer in his own right, and uh, you've had other siblings. It's funny, you know. I'm friendly with the the Gotti family, and the Gottis are mostly well known for being mobsters. You had John Gotti, who was the boss of the Gambino crime family. His brother Peter was the boss of the Gambino crime family. His brother Gene, a high-ranking member of the Gambino crime family. Their brother Vincent, I believe, was a soldier in the Gambino crime family, but certainly in the mob. And it's funny, John Gotti Jr. once told me that um, there's a Gotti brother, a brother of John Gotti, that no one knows about. They call him the black sheep of their family. His name's Bill Gotti. He lives in California, has nothing to do with organized crime. A legitimate guy just ran a restaurant or something. And uh, then there's also, of course, Daniel Baldwin, who I think by any objective measure is the least known of all the Baldwin brothers. Of the McCourt brothers, if you were to pick a, 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 a Daniel Baldwin or a Bill Gotti, who would it be? Who is the McCourt sibling that no one knows, if there is one? Mike McCourt. Mike McCourt. Mike McCourt, yeah. I mean, of course, there's the two dead ones, Eugene and Oliver. They died in Ireland, and my sister died in Brooklyn. But Mike, Mike survived, and uh, he hired himself off to California. And there he became one of the most, in San Francisco, one of the most beloved uh, keep barkeeps that ever was out there. And uh, he used to, what's her name, the governor, uh, um, was a good friend of his. She um, popped in, used to go and see him. And uh, just about anybody in California uh, knew my brother Mike. And of of note, knew him. But he he died uh, also. And... uh, but he was the one. He was the, he was the the the, the unknown hmm. equivalent of the Gotti lad, Bill Gotti, <laughs> and Mike. And when he died, about uh, five five years ago, there were numerous uh, for an obscure bartender, obscure which he wasn't. They wrote the obituaries in the papers out there were so big and laudatory. And one columnist wrote that there are no celebrities in San Francisco, with one exception, Mike McCourt. (laughs) What's his deal? He couldn't figure out how to write a memoir like the rest of the family? What, did he skip that uh, course at the the dinner table in your family? Well, he... Yeah, well, of course, we had no dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that'll do it. Dinner was a cup of tea and a slice of bread, so there was no dinner table. But uh, but anyway, we were always we we always did have the joke, 
And we did uh, the great thing. Great thing was the library came to Limerick, and Frank and I, and Mike and and and, and Alfie, ate the books there. <laughs> ate them. We didn't read them. We ate them. Well, I'm guessing they had a lot of fiber. So good for you. Um, you know, you mentioned that you're in hospice. You clearly are approaching death with the best attitude I've ever heard anybody approach death. You, you wrote a book even before it was well known that you were close to dying. Although, as you said in the book, you come from a long line of dead people. It's called yes, de- de- Death Need Not Be Fatal. What are you going to uh, miss most as you pass on to the next chapter of your existence or non-existence? What was that, Frank? What's the question? As you uh, pass on to the next chapter of whatever, whatever, whatever lies beyond this plane, what are you going to miss most? Uh, I am uh, the thing that most Irish men are loath to say, to use the word love in uh, any kind of intimate relationship. I mean, we will say things. We will say. We will say. Oh, I love, uh, you know, a soccer team, or I love the spa, or I, uh, but anything except to say love my wife. And the thing is that I'm not loath to say that. I love my wife, Diana. She's number two in my life. She was. My first wife just died a while ago. But my wife, Diana, is very much alive. And uh, she's a very caring and was indeed one, considered one of the most beautiful women in New York. Nora Ephraim told me that. And yet she was modest and is. So I love her and I would miss her enormously. Uh, I love my kids. I have, uh, I love them. I, I have, I have four of them and I have uh, nine grandchildren. I'm one great. So I think it is mm. the loving people. I'm sober now, uh, 20, 37 years. And uh, booze was also my disease. But I managed to get uh, sober a day at a time. I still am. So I hope that I will die sober and loving, and that's it. So what will I miss? I'll miss my family. That's wonderful. Uh, that, yeah. That's wonderful and, and sad at the same time. In a couple of weeks, you're going to be 91 years old, which is pretty good. You've uh, beaten yeah, all, absolutely beaten all the actuarial estimates. And as the American life expectancy is going down to a rate that we haven't seen since 1996, you're going in the opposite direction. So give give the folks listening, Maliki, a little bit of advice. If someone wants to make it to their 90s, what should they be doing? Well, I would say that the the best way that to live, I think, is moderation in all things, in the in the food department, in the drink department, and in the dislike. I mean, we are we're we're all getting very excited about uh, about uh, about what's happening in our political and international life. And I can't do anything about that. I mean, I'm not making any secret of the fact. First of all, stay away from hate. Never, never, never hate. 
it's a killer. It, it turns on you, see? So I never, I never say I hate anything. I might say I dislike or I'm uncomfortable with, but I never say I hate this. All right. People use it too loosely. It's a very powerful word that gets into your being. So never say that uh, about anything. There's nobody. Because if, if, if you hate somebody or something, that turns on you because hate will envelop you. And, uh, and that, that colors your life. So don't do it. So the thing is, you can dislike somebody, but that's about as far as it goes. I, I no human being can cause me to uh, use or be hateful. Well, it's great. It's great advice. Uh, your book, Among Swimming, is uh, something that has uh, been a bestseller. It's gotten a lot of wonderful reviews over the years, and uh, you've decided to re-release that book, and people can check that book out on Amazon or or elsewhere. How come? Why are you uh, re-releasing this uh, this book, which is uh, now a few decades old? Well, my um, it's it's not the, the thing is that my 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 uh, uh, public for for the guy that said to me that rang me up one day and said John Weber he's a publisher welcome rain publishing who are publishing amongst women he say he called me and said uh, I knew him um, socially and he said to me uh, Maliki after it was a that Frank wrote uh, among uh, Angela's Ashes. He said to me, Maliki, you have a book in you. And that sort of sat me back. So I said... Was it the one that I ate? Yes. I said, do I have to have a literary bowel movement? (laughs) 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 He said, now stop the around, you know. You have a book. So he said, I'd like to publish it. So uh, then... He called me and said, it's too small, too big for me. I'm going to get you an agent. So he got me an agent. And they uh, vended it. And at uh, Hyperion, which is uh, Disney, published it. And it became a bestseller. Mm. And uh, off we went. And that was it. So I couldn't get over the fact that all I did was write down some thoughts that I had that amused me, and uh, there is, and uh, and I and I, in the sense that I, I I took it in degree seriously as much as I could, but off it went, and then came the next one, and uh, then the next one. I then I wrote a history of Ireland. Then I wrote a thing for uh, Alcoholics, a day at a time book. And so I was just having so so much fun with this writing business. And I never thought I could because I know know nothing about grammar, not a bloody thing. I couldn't tell anything about it. All I know was that if you have a, uh, it's like having an ear, I think, for music. I know by ear when something is grammatically incorrect, but I couldn't tell you why. And, and, and the teachers just said to me in school, the, the, uh, the unanswerable question 
How can you be so stupid? <laughs> <laughs> I still don't have the answer. I don't know. It's, I just taught your son. It's very easy. <laughs> it, it comes natural. Believe me, I, I would tell folks the same thing. Uh, talking with uh, Malachi McCourt. Malachi, as anybody that uh, hears your beautiful accent can tell, you were, of course, born in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. What people may not be able to tell behind that beautiful Brooklyn accent of yours is that uh, as a youth, you moved to Ireland along with your family. But then in 1952, you came back uh, to the United States of America. Why? Why did you choose to come back to the United States after and leave? beautiful Ireland. Well, beautiful Ireland was, as I often tell people, it's the one thing that's inedible is scenery. You can't eat it. <laughs> I, I came back and I uh, I got, of course, having no uh, educational qualifications for anything. I got work as a, as a dishwasher and I got work as a laborer on, and I worked uh, on the uh, docks as a longshoreman, and then uh, one night I walked into a theater. I wanted, I used to love to go to the theater, and I just thought, I'd, well, yeah, here, there was some uh, off Broadway, very cheap then. It was only eight dollars. Just loved that, so I went to see an Irish play. Then I thought it'd be great to be an actor. So I walked back in and I asked the guy, "How do I join their group?" And he said, what do you mean? I'd like to be, I'd like to, he said, do you have any experience? I said, no, I wouldn't need it. I'm Irish. And he laughed and he said, uh, do you have pictures? And I did. I said, I had, uh, I had a gra- autographed picture of the sacred house in my wallet. So he comes off the ladder anyway, because you're hanging up something. He said, would you read for us? And I thought it was a literacy test. Hmm. Come back on Sunday, and I come back on Sunday, and I read. And somebody was leaving the cast, my age at the time. I was in my early 20s. And he gave me a part in the play. And I got great reviews. And then I used to go down to a bar around the corner, bringing the audience. And then I used to do, and then somebody asked me, to, Tom O'Malley asked me to go on to the night show with Jack Parr. I was wondering, what the hell, for? He said, you're a great talker. Okay. So I didn't know what that was about. But anyway, I drank and went on, and I was, uh, they said it was funny. So they asked me back again and again and again. Then somebody said, how about opening up your own bar? I said, sure. I was a great yes man, Frank. <laughs> I see that. I see that. Seems like a lot of the people around you had some good ideas and uh, and you, maybe even your best interests at heart. Uh, just in terms of that Tonight Show with Jack Parr chapter of your life again, would you always do the Jack Parr show drunk, or was it just your first appearance on Jack Parr that you did drunk? Well, it wasn't so much. Again, I never considered myself drunk, but I did not go on without a few gargles, you know. That was it. I needed to uh, have some kind of refreshment, and uh, so it was. It was always at least high on the par. So anyway, well, no, I can. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to any prospective talk no. show guests that are listening to us. But whatever works. Um, if you had to pick, Malachi, and maybe this is an unfair question, but you're the person I think to ask it to. You've chronicled, and in our last discussion, you mentioned all the variety of health issues you have, including some terminal illnesses. But um, if you had to pick 
what is the best thing about dying? Well, the, the fact is that you know you are. And the fact is that, for example, now here, you said dying, which most Americans avoid saying. Um, it's always passed away, left us, no longer with us, gone to heaven with the Lord, bought the farm, and every uh, euphemism you can imagine, except he's dead or he's dying, you know, so... Don't avoid it. We can't. We're all mortal beings, and off we go. And that's the, and that is. Uh, I have a death date, which at the moment I'm not going to keep, because it's supposed to be uh, November 9th. So, but if I do die on that day. Can I be on the show on the 10th, please? Oh, absolutely. There's uh, nobody that I'd rather celebrate their death date with uh, than you. You, you, can, you can count on that. When you were in your, your bar days as a, as a bar owner, um, there was one instance that uh, you've written about in your book where you actually got stopped by your own bouncer. Now, how does that happen? Wouldn't the bouncer of your establishment, the establishment that bore your name, know who you are? How does that happen? Well, I had partners, and um, uh, Frank, and uh, at Malachy's, Malachy's was Malik, which was his first singles bar in New York. And I was doing a play with the people who hired me because we, then they hired me in the next play, and I got grave reviews. Uh, uh, Brooks, uh, Rupert Brooks, was the great critic of the Times, and he said that I was excellent as the pusillanimous lover. <laughs> now, Jesus, I had to look up that word, pusillanimous. And I, uh, and that was it. It was sort of weak. And, uh, and <laughs> anyway, look it up yourself. So anyway, uh, so I used to be uh, doing the play and then coming to the bar after. But uh, it got, the bloody place got so popular at 63rd and 3rd Avenue that people used to line up with big queues of people outside. So I used to just come up and go in. But while I was away, the partners hired a bouncer, and I didn't know about it. So I arrive after the play, and I go, I see this line up, this queue outside, trying to get into this bloody rundown old joint. And I went to walk in, and this big guy stopped me and said, Hey, Mac, I didn't know that he knew my name. He said, Mac. Where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going in. He said, do you see that line? And I said, yes. Well, he said, get in it. And I said to him, so my, my name, Maliki, was up on the canopy. And I said, do you see that name up there? I, he said, yeah. I said, well, that's me. Look, he said, every asshole says that. Get <laughs> to the back of the line. <laughs> and he wouldn't let me in. So I went off and got drunk at another bar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, going to the competition, even if it means uh, taking a few dimes out of your own pocket. That's great. Hey, why did you uh, why did you quit drinking back in 1985? Well, it was ruining my life and uh, with my beloved wife, and uh, that was it. So I stopped. It was how it caused me it was caused me to act stupidly and uh, and, and death defying. So I just stopped. That was it. So I went to AA and got sober, and uh, there I am.
No, but, but, but well, that's great. That's great, and something. And certain... I've never been happier. That's the thing. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, that is absolutely terrific. One of my favorite films, actually, bar none, my favorite film that you've ever appeared in is the Richard Pryor film, uh, Brewster's Millions. You play the doorman, and uh, you don't look like you've aged much, even though that film's about 40 years old. Uh, what was it like working with Richard Pryor? He had a little bit of a reputation as a as a wild man. Certainly his talents were undeniable. How did you find Richard Pryor as somebody to work with and somebody to be around i i found him he was very gentle guy actually and uh he uh he was at the my over the door was playing a doorman at the plaza hotel and he and we were uh he used to come and chat with me and we would just uh, quietly chat between takes and what have you so this one day i'm talking to him and a taxi pulled up and a woman got out, and the driver got out and went to the back of the taxi, opened up the trunk, and took out two suitcases. And she looked up at Pryor and myself, and she said loudly, You, she said, Dorman, stop talking to the riffraff and get down here and get take my bags. Well, Pryor, well, he was not well-dressed for the part, you know. He was playing the millionaire guy. So... Uh, and I said to him, will you give me a hand? And he said, sure. So Pryor and I walked down the steps, and we picked up the – he picked up one bag, and I picked, I picked up the other. <laughs> and we went in, and then she gave she, – she took up two quarters and gave one to Pryor and one to me. <laughs> That's and terrific. He said, no, thanks. You need it better. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. Maliki, as always happens whenever we're together, uh, uh, the time has just flown by. We're just about out of time, but there's one last question I have to ask you before we yes. uh, before we go. One, uh, you are an Irish-American, probably one of the best-known Irish-Americans in the whole country. My son is uh, part Irish. His mother's maiden name is O'Brien. He's not, all of nine months old now, looks very Irish, looks far more Irish than he does Italian. Any yes. advice for me as uh, somebody that's raised a number of Irish children yourself. Any advice on raising an Irish-American successfully? Uh, I would say uh, read to him early and encourage him to read. And he will make up his own mind about where he's going in life, no matter what you say. But uh, just, just try and give him a, 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 a very good working knowledge of of the language, so that he's able to express himself without frustration. And be sure to tell him every day that you love him. Oh uh, well, that's that's wonderful. That second part is easy, and I'll work on the first. Maliki, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you socially on Friday. I uh, hope uh, hope all goes well, and I uh, hope you outlive that hospice. And we're talking to you on your death date. <laughs> well, Frank Romano, you are the most generous, uh, decent, uh, understanding. Um, and 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 a nice humorous host, and I appreciate your your I appreciate your knowledge and your insights, and a uh, long life to you and uh, good health.
uh, at all times, and to you and your wife and your children. Thank you very much, uh, Malachi. I appreciate that very much. And uh, after uh, every every conversation I have with you, my anger at the people of the state of New York grows even greater uh, for the fact that they elected Elliot Spitzer governor in 2006 instead of you. Had they elected you, this state and everybody in it would be in a much better position than we actually are. Malachi McCourt, uh, if you want to check out the book, Death Need Not Be Fatal, you can get it in bookstores, you can get it online as you can among swimming and uh, be on the lookout for his uh, next book. I read your brother's book, which should certainly be chock full of interesting anecdotes. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Midnight. 